Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello. Hello, John. Hiya. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. Good, good. And welcome Thanks. all to a chapter of my life with author John Leonard. John joins me today to talk about his wonderful book, Tony Waddington, director of the Working Man's A Working Man's Ballet. Uh, but first, let's talk about your background and your back catalogue. Well, I spent my entire adult life as a journalist and a career beginning with local newspapers. I worked uh, in the 80s for the BBC, uh, including Newsnight, and briefly was a sports producer there. And then I worked from that period onwards for ITN, variously for ITV, also for Five News, part of the startup team of Five News back in the, in the late 90s. And at ITN, a lot of my time was as a sports news editor before uh, becoming a programme editor with both ITV News and Five News. And uh, that's my background, in, in career background in, in, in journalism. But in, obviously, I've always, as I mentioned, taken an interest in sport. Uh, athletics, actually, is, is my sport, I, I'd say, rather than football. I had two left feet, so that was no good, but I was a reasonable athlete. And uh, all my time i've since a young kid i've supported stoke city football club hence the interest in writing a biography of tony warrington uh, you know, there's been a few uh, little books written about him but not something looking back as his career at his career as a, a football player very briefly and a manager and that's what i wanted to do and that's what i set out to do with this book and i've also written uh, one or two others uh, including quite recently a biography of not just Neil Franklin, Neil, Frank, Neil was, is the basis for it, but on the El Dorado chapter in the 1950s, in 1950 itself, when uh, British footballers went abroad, uh, Franklin flew out with George Mountford, uh, Charlie Mitten was probably the most other high-profile uh, footballer with Bobby Flavel, the Scottish International of Hearts, and they went out to uh, try and seek out... Uh, a new and better life when things weren't so good for professional footballers back in the day. Franklin was probably, arguably, the best England player of his time, and yet he didn't go to a World Cup. So that came out last year. Um, my water book uh, came out a couple of years before that, and uh, it's been a labour of joy, I'd say, just to do do, do those uh, little projects. And their careers, both at Stoke City... Did they lap? They didn't. They just missed, didn't they? Yes, they did by a couple of years. In yeah. 1950, as I say, is when Franklin uh, went to uh, Bogota. Uh, George Mountford, uh, actually, who went with him, Wado arrived in, in 52, 53. He, he arrived with uh, Arthur Turner, who was the... the, uh, the the crew manager, actually, and he moved to Stoke uh, just after Bon McGrory. He was, it was the manager of Stoke when they were going for league titles in the late 30s and uh, the, the, the mid-40s after the war. But uh, unfortunately, the club was falling apart in, in the early 50s. And what it went with Turner on, on, on this rescue act, Franklin had already uh, departed in disgrace as far as uh, the Stoke City board of the time was concerned, although his reputation, well, he never went away with the fans and uh, thankfully with a later uh, regime at Stoke City, it was re rehabilitated. He was welcomed welcome back to the club in the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, so, no, they didn't, they didn't coincide, although there are, there are little twists and that man Turner is actually part of it you know it, it, it's it, it, it is quite strange in the small world of football it's I think it's the case now as much as it was in the 50s everybody had their you know, they had their little contacts they had their friendships within the sport and so even though they weren't necessarily at the same club there'd be people keeping an eye and say look keep an eye on him and actually this 
in a funny way, the signing of John Ritchie in the 60s came about because of Arthur Turner. He was he was a constant figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, the guy who told a young Ron Atkinson just how to play against uh, an older um, Neil Franklin in, 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 a, in a Southern League game. Uh, Oxford United were playing uh, uh, Wellington, I think it was, uh, from Shropshire. And uh, Turner told... Uh, well, Ron, Ron, Ron claims that he made a bit of a, a you know, a fool of Neil Franklin. I can't believe that was true, but he, you know how Ron likes to tell a story, and uh, I, I will believe him. I will believe him. Yeah, uh, Ron got wind of a certain move that Neil always did. Uh, Ron intercepted it, and uh, Ron tells a great story and dines out on it. Ron's an absolute legend. Franklin was an absolute legend. Absolutely. seemed to have. As you said earlier, you alluded to, Stoke City really were going for the championship and 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 he appeared to fall out with many of Stoke's leading players. He didn't seem to be... Whereas you look at Waddo, Waddo was the most charismatic. Don't worry about it. Let's sit down. Let's sort it out. It was never about Tony Waddington. With McGrory, it seemed to be all about him and it it seemed to looking from a distance not as a Stoke fan but reading this wonderful book and it is a great book it seemed to fall apart at the seams and, and largely down to bad management really by McCrory yeah it's, it's very sad I, mean, I think still in the pantheon of managers McCrory was was decent. I mean, in yeah, terms yeah. of Stoke, in terms of Stoke, he, yeah, as you say, in, in uh, 46, 47, I think it was that Stoke were, were going f- for, for the title and it, it fell apart because of, well, he just couldn't get on with one man in particular and that was Stanley Matthews. I mean, he sold Matthews six weeks before the end of the season when Stoke were, well, at the top of the table, they were in a, a very strong chance of, of winning the title. They had one game to play. They had to beat Sheffield uh, uh, United, and they'd take the title on the last day of the season. They beat Sheffield United at Bramall Lane, and they lost. And plus the players, Franklin included, so well, if we had Matthews on the wing, we'd have won the game. Yeah. Simple as that. And it's... But it wasn't just Matthews. It was one or two others. Frank Sue, for example, he fell out with. So decent players. Yeah. He, he wasn't able to handle the big players for some reason. He didn't have the management skills, as you say, that Waddo had later on. And Waddo coming to that club, first as a coach, he got promoted to manager, well, assistant manager to Frank Taylor. And then in June 1960, took over, didn't he? He did, but he had... Apologies, just a bit of a cough there. He, he had a brief spell as assistant manager yeah. in '57, uh, and uh, did quite well actually early on. Gordon Taylor was a Stoke uh, manager at the time and had constant uh, problems with his health. And his first game actually was against Middlesbrough, and the man who scored the opening goal in that game was a certain Brian Clough, yeah. who later on became a a managerial rival, but a good friend of Waddo's too. But it was to say, as you say, it was 1960. Gordon Taylor, he'd had a heart attack in '57. He, in his health, never recovered. And during the summer, the Stoke board and there's a bit of controversy over this how how the Stoke board handled it. Uh, to be honest, a lot of fans don't think they handled it that well. But anyway, uh, Tony Warrington took over, and he had a big rebuilding job to do for the football club. Now, the manager, it was Frank Taylor, not Gordon. Gordon was one of the... He was a chairman, wasn't he? There was all Albert and Gordon vying for chairmanship and vice-chairmanship. It was swings and roundabouts, wasn't it, sometimes? Were they related? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, No. No, no, no. And it it was the June in 1960, wasn't it, that, that he took over from Frank? And you're right, Frank had ill health. It wasn't that he was failing at the job. He was doing a reasonable job with Waddo. But Waddo then was the manager, and he had to really rebuild Stoke City. You talk about um, Brian Clough. We'll talk about them later on. 
in the uh, in in the podcast but they really became good mates and Brian took a lot of what Tony Waddington did and and Waddo took a lot of what Cluffy did you know their their careers were very similar and both managing in um, in smaller clubs in smaller towns and cities not like the big cities that um, Busby and Shankly were managing in yes that's the key it was uh... A provincial city, a very industrial city, a working class city. They both understood that. They yeah. similar backgrounds. One of them grew up in Manchester in, a, in an estate there. As we know, Cluffy was from the northeast of England. They 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 knew that there was the whole thing about the working man's ballet. They they knew it was a working class sport, yeah. and they pushed that. They and and they both had problems. At their clubs, I'd argue maybe maybe uh, at uh, Stoke City in night in the early 60s that Waddo had far more of a task than Brian Clough did in the late 60s and with Forrest uh, in the mid to late 70s. Yeah. But it, it, even so, he did need to change uh, things around big time. Stoke was going only one way, and that was downhill. Uh, off the pitch, it things were in a bit of a state. There was ridiculous things going on, such as, you know, the the, the chairman bringing, he was a farmer, stroke builder, and he bought, and they were trying to rebuild the main stand at Stoke. And at the same time they were doing that, he had sheep on the, on, on the Victoria ground pitch grazing, claiming it would help the grass, which of course the groundsman thought differently of. And, and so did Tony Warrington. He just wanted to get rid of the damn sheep, as he put it, and uh, he did so. It was it was quite quirky, and it was, but he set about changing things. In in what the ideal model you say, he'd bring along the younger players. He'd been working with them in the 1950s, and what he wanted to do is to is to marry them up with the older players, the experienced players. He did that well with Avengers. It was it was remarkable. I talked about how Sally Matthews left the club, the, the prodigal son returned, and, and so many other top-class players, and quite a few well before Matthews, and that was key to turning Stokes' fortunes round, bringing the crowds back to the Victorian ground, and importantly, getting some revenue coming through the turnstiles. And he had an eye for a bargain, didn't he? He picked up... I suppose you could argue that lots of them were world-class players, but but towards the end of the career, but still had a lot in the tank. For instance, the, the, the catalyst of, of Stoke's uh, promotion really was bringing back Matthews. But a few years before, he brought in Dennis Wilshaw from uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers, hadn't he? And, and Jimmy McElroy from, uh, from Burnley. You know, these... These are players that ordinarily wouldn't be going or looking at teams like Stoke or for 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 you know for example my team like Birmingham they'd be looking at bigger clubs but but Waddington attracted those players because he was honest with them and he told him exactly what his vision was. Wilshaw in particular, I think, was key at the stage. Yeah, and and they had of course a good calling card. Many first division clubs wanted Dennis Wilshaw. He was an England centre-forward. At the time, he he had the record for the most goals in an England international. He'd won the league, he'd won the cup with Wolves. But, and this is the odd thing of the day, he was a part-timer technically. He was a school teacher and he was still based in the Potteries. Dennis was from Stoke-on-Trent. He taught in, in Stoke. He ran the Stoke-on-Trent schools team as one of his uh, uh, duties under the education board. And so Waddle had a, well, he had a little bit of an in, let's say, and he was able to tempt Dennis back up to Stoke-on-Trent. And Wilshaw was more than happy to oblige, more than happy to help out, carry on with his, uh, his duties, coaching the, the young, promising pottery school kids. That too was key. That would bring rewards later on. And so it was quite a canny thing to do, to bring Wilshaw on. And also... Wilshaw had good contacts in the sport. He also you know, went was on very good terms with Ron Stewart, the Wolves' uh, centre half in, in the late fifties, and and Stewart from he he happily also came along. Not only did that, but became where uh, Waddo's captain. So so quite cute signings, and of course Jimmy McElroy, as you mentioned, was. It's ridiculous that uh, Burnley let him go. Yeah. In fact, there was a bit of a struggle. Bob Lord, the, the legendary chairman of Burnley, you know, held out. But 
after winning the league, Burnley fell out with him, both at board level and within the, and there was an outrage within the within the town. But McElroy went, and of course, I sh- I should not forget uh, Dennis Violet. I mean, from, from Manchester United, again, Wado being an old Manchester United player, remained on good terms with Matt Busby, even though Matt told him that his career as a top class footballer was over. Warrington disagreed. He, he he carried on. He persevered. He had two or three years as a player with Crew Alexandra, but he maintained his friendship with Busby. And I think in his managerial career, learned a lot off him. Uh, you know, uh, early on, and maintained contact with him. And so it was simply he picked up the phone to Matt Busby when he realised that uh, Violet was out the squad and. Uh, Busby said, well, you can have a word with him if you want. You can go along and have a little chat. And he did. And he managed to persuade uh, uh, you know, Violet to join, to join the club. Although he went to a, a League Cup, or, or I think an FA Cup tie, actually. And he did turn around to Wado and said, well, what do you want me for? This lot this lot are, are so good. I might not get in the team. But obviously he did get in the team. And uh, he gave Stoke... Uh, some uh, decent service for three or four years at the end of his career. And when you look at that, you've got Wilshire, you've got McElroy, you've got Matthews, you've got Violet. I mean, four players that he attracted to the Potteries. Stoke were in Division 2. It, you know, is an extraordinary story of, of how Tony Waddington recruited these players. He even had problems with management in the early days as well because his goalkeeper was tapped up and there was a there was a, a, a bet fixing scenario against Norwich as well so he had that as well to contend with Tony had an awful lot because he was still a very young man an awful lot to contend with in them early years and um, and must have learned a lot on the ground running with it I think the Jimmy O'Neill episode he was the Stoke goalkeeper he was yeah. uh, he, he signed him from Everton and he played for the Republic of Ireland, and uh, well, thankfully for his honesty, because uh, Neil uh, let uh, Warrington know there was an investigation you know, by the Football League, and uh, it was it was all uh, swept under the carpet. Nothing came of it. Uh, later on, of course, we know there was a scandal in the in the sixties, Peter Swan and all that from Sheffield Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, gambling was a big problem, and it's a measure at the time, really, of. Uh, how players were trying to earn more money because they, they were still on maximum wage at the time. It's actually well, it went in the late fifties, but there was there was there was <laughs> earning nowhere near the level of, of pay of uh, players in the seventies, for example, on let alone what we see players earning now. Yeah, it was uh, it was diff- different times, difficult times for a young manager cutting his teeth. But the catalyst for the promotion was it was a Turkish fortune teller that told him to go and get an old man from the sea. And when he did, and and the remarkable thing is when they went up to Blackpool and and got Matthews or they they actually pretty much signed him in the same hotel that he signed Hudson in, uh, in Russell Square, Matthews was 46 I mean, it, it's quite incredible, isn't it? It is. Uh, and again, I go back to Wilshaw because he, Matthews was not only just keeping himself fit, playing for Blackpool, and he was in and out of the team. He's still playing in the first division. Yeah. He's in, as I say, in and out. But he also, during the uh, summer, he'd go off to play for Vancouver in North America. Yeah. And Dennis Wilshaw, his career ended with with an injury, and he went out there briefly coaching in Vancouver. So, Watto picked up the phone and uh, got in hold of uh, Dennis Wilshaw and he said, how is he playing? He says, playing better than any, anybody I've seen back in England. If you, you know, if, he, if he's available, go and sign him. Yeah. And, uh, and, and and that's what he did. But also, I must mention Jackie Moody who played with uh, Matthews at Blackpool and Watto had signed him too. So, he was quite key in, in brokering this deal and Will Matthews come back? And I think maybe the back of his mind, there might have been uh, some reservations. He obviously wanted to carry on playing, but he left uh, in the high dudgeon. He wasn't 
too popular with many of the Stoke fans of the day who didn't forgive him for uh, walking out just before the end of that 46-47 uh, season. Nevertheless, it was it was an opportunity. It was he was uh, coming home and uh, alongside uh, Tony Warrington, he had at the time then a charismatic chairman in, in Albert Henschel, and the pair of them together they were great mates and. They persuaded uh, Matthews to sign. Not only that, but he was able to uh, stay in and living in uh, Blackpool, running his hotel and all that. So a good deal was done. You know, just bringing him back in terms of playing. It, it was, I think, the home uh, crowd before he signed was eight thousand. Yeah. And thirty odd thousand turned up for his his debut against Huddersfield Town when he, he was up against uh, a young Ray Wilson who uh, went on to do quite great things in 1966, as most football fans know. He also had the the law as well. He had that respect. Matthews, the first uh, knight of the realm in football, when they when they won promotion uh, back to the first division. Uh, and in 1963, the centenary year, they were able to attract Real Madrid pretty much because of Stan Matthews and Puskas and Di Stefano come and plied their trade on the Victoria ground football pitch, which is quite remarkable, isn't it? It, it is remarkable. And uh, in some ways, Warrington in his interviews in the, in the 80s, he, he did say that was one of his greatest achievements to bring yeah. over Real Madrid and to get a full house at the Victoria ground to watch some of the greats of the games playing and the, and the greatest club uh, of the time. I mean, they, uh, what, they'd won five World, uh, European Cups yeah, in a row in the 50s, back to back. And it was the centenary of Stoke, Stoke City, as you say. And he invited the chairman of all the football league clubs there the, uh, to, the, to the match and to a dinner beforehand. And it was a great publicity uh, coup as well because, as you, as you mentioned, he had a great eye for publicity, uh, did Warrington. He just knew how to attract interest from the national press, national broadcasters of the day. And, of course, they were all there for this match. It was it was just ridiculous, you know. It's, obviously, there was interest in Stoke then because they were going for the second division title. But even so, just for a testimonial, it was quite remarkable. It certainly was, and we all know that Tony Waddington, his his love for inside forwards is quite incredible. I mean, when he signed Alan Hudson, he says, I've signed Dennis Pilot, I've signed Roy Vernon, I've saw, signed George Eastham and Jimmy McElroy, and now I've signed you. And he just loved the inside forward. But he built that team with the Waddington's wall, didn't he? And that was where Alan first come across Tony Waddington. As a young one, he was at that game, uh, Chelsea, when uh, Stone City went and Jimmy McElroy scored the winning goal and the Chelsea fans were giving him quite a lot of abuse and and Tony Waddington just took it and Alan as a young kid looked at him and thought this guy's a bit different to all other managers that I've seen and he never heard from him till the day that he met him in Russell Square and uh, again Alan says many many years later when he signed for Waddington it's like a love affair Oh, it was. So it was his. It was his. Obviously, Alan had great love for his own father. Asked his own dad as to whether to sign for, for Stoke under what you know with Tony Warrington. He said, well, "Crying out loud, yes, go and do it." And I'm not surprised. You mentioned Warrington's wall. There was Eddie Clamp, something of a legend at Wolves. Again, again, one of the cup winners in England international. He was Matthew's minder, and uh, you know he. Chelsea hard men weren't able to stand up to him. I'm sure Chelsea fans were a little bit staggered at uh, how he got away with things, did Eddie Clamp. But, you know, that's, that's how he, it was paid hard but fair, I think is the best way of summing it up. I think, I think it's fair to say that if Eddie was playing today, he probably would receive quite a lot of yellow cards. He sent off. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was his style. But it, 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 you're right. It was a it was a style that w- was mixed from a solid platform. Tony Waddington loved a goalkeeper. His love of the number one position come from the great Frank Swift as a kid. Used to go and watch Manchester City play, didn't he? He did. I mean, he's one of those who'd uh, in the, in those days uh, fans would go to both teams. They go yeah. to both Ma- Manchester clubs, and it was Swift who influenced him and. 
I think it was Peter Coates who told me, the Stoke chairman, that uh, he said that talking one thing that he always remembered uh, Tony Watson told him is that I rate goalkeepers as well as strongly as a top striker. Because if you stop the ball going in the net, that is going to earn you extra points during the course of a season. And so, as I mentioned earlier, Jimmy O'Neill from Everton came. He had a struggle when O'Neill uh, uh, basically retired uh, in, the, in the early 60s. <laughs> Being a bit rude there, he went to Port Vale. But anyway, leave that aside. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, he 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 knew that he want he 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 signed Harry Gregg, though Gregg didn't play many games. He struggled until, of course, he signed Gordon Banks. And again, in in, build, in bringing the club forward, having established them in in the first division, what obviously now the Premier League, Banksy was key because he had he had Banks there. He had good young players as as defenders to rebuild his wall. Dennis Smith, centre half, Alan Bloor. Jackie Marsh, a full-back. Mike Pejic, who came along later as a left-back. He had Alex Elder from Burnley actually playing from Northern Ireland International playing there before uh, Mike Pejic. And so, and so it, there was that solidity. And from that, Stoke City could build going forward in midfield and interlink, you know, interlinking with his inside forwards and a big centre-forward up top. Peter Dobin, another tremendous signing for Tony Waddington and also George Eastham arrived around about the same time as Gordon Banks. But there was a little bit of a snag with Gordon Banks and, and Tony. There was a loyalty payment that wasn't given to Gordon by Leicester, but Tony paid for it himself. Or rather, Tony yeah. didn't, but, but the, uh, the the backers well, the, of Stoke City did. Well, the football club did. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, it was only, I think it was a Stokes Club doctor who gave it, gave it away to Gordon Banks what actually happened. Yeah. Banks, he thought that Leicester had paid up the loyalty payment, yeah. but Stoke actually, well, not Stoke City, uh, Warrington agreed to pay it on their behalf. Mm. And so that's what, that's what happened. And at the same time, a certain Bill Shankly was on the phone uh, to Leicester trying to get hold of uh, Gordon Banks. But... Uh, I even spoke to Banksy and and said what do you want to go to Stoke for, but I I, I think it's a measure of uh, the powers of persuasion of Tony Warrington that he managed to take England's goalkeeper, the best goalkeeper in the world at the time, to little old Stoke and not up to Merseyside to play for Liverpool. It's crazy to think of now. I don't think it happened now, but he, he Warrington did. He, just shows you how much of a miracle, miracle worker he was at the time. I suppose in isolation you might think that, and people would be right to think that. But when you look at the list of players that Tony Waddington attracted to Stoke City, um, it doesn't seem that bizarre. He he'd done a very similar thing with Alan Hudson as well because there was a loyalty payment, and uh, it, it, again Stoke City play paid it rather than uh, Chelsea paid it. The parallels to Brian Clough. Brian Clough also loved goalkeepers. He was a big believer that the goalkeeping position was a very, very important uh, position. And when, of course, he, he took Forrest on to glories, he uh, he went and bought Peter Shilton, who incidentally was the understudy to Gordon Banks at Leicester City. Another parallel with uh, with Brian Clough is what do like to water pitches, didn't he? Oh, I I think uh, Cloughy took that little I trick do. off Tony Waddington. Yeah, I said <laughs> because... to Woody about that, yeah. He'd been doing it for, for some time. He'd been doing it in the uh, in the early 60s. He managed to uh, persuade the Stoke Fire Brigade to turn up and they had uh, a, a special solution, basically some sort of defrosting solution they, they poured on, on, onto, the, onto the pitch. And it, it was first done for uh, Stanley Matthews because... You know, he was, as you as you mentioned, he was late in his late forties, and he, he he finished his final game for Stoke as a first team at uh, age fifty, yeah. and so he, Stanner had uh, had his knocks. He was carrying his uh, injuries from a what forty five year old playing career. It's ridiculous to think about, and so one way of getting around it, as far as what it was concerned, was to uh, water the pitch to to soften the pitch for 
uh, the, the old aching limbs of, St- of Stanley Matthews and maybe one or two of the uh, other players, although the likes of Jimmy McElroy denied all that. But actually, even you know, McElroy spoke about it and said that it was a pretty handy thing to do. But he's, he was always amazed at how Math- Matthews was able to skip through the mud. And of course, they'd, they'd have a, a go of training on it. and it, it, It's crazy. It's, it was, as Hoddy uh, pointed out, it's almost as though Stoke had its own microclimate, but it wasn't the case at all. He also took Brian Clough on the uh, on the European tour as well. When you played Ajax, Cloughy was there in nineteen. What was it, nineteen seventy four? Yes, it was, and uh, I'm not sure. Well, I, I might be unfair by saying a bit of guilt came into it because right at the start of the season, uh, Clough's first game with Leeds United was at Stoke, and they lost three 0 Stoke City uh, absolutely hammered them that day. And of course, as we know, uh, Cloughy didn't last very long at Leeds. But uh, when it came to uh, going over to Amsterdam, uh, Warrington phoned him up. He he was quite happy to to listen to others. He wanted help as much as anything else, yeah. tactically. And so he, he made the wise decision of asking his friend to uh, go go over to Amsterdam. And, and Stoke, uh, they gave a good account of themselves. You know, I think Alan Hudson once told me he'd say he said yeah. it was the best game he ever played. Mm. It was the away leg in 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 Amsterdam against Ajax. It was nil nil. Sadly, the first leg was one all. So Stoke went out on the away goals rule, but uh, it it was it was quite odd because uh, Ajax the Ajax manager of the day uh, reckoned that they thrashed Stoke six nil or something like ridiculous. Of course, it never happened, and they were lucky to go through. And, it, and that was the team that was only a couple of years earlier uh, had won the European Cup with uh, uh, Cruyff, who wasn't there at the time. He, he'd moved on to Barcelona, but even so, it, it was it was it was some team they're up against. And uh, Cluffy helped them out. And funnily enough, uh, five or six years later, uh, Cluffy returned the compliment and uh, invited. Uh, Warrington on the away legs and when Forrest went on to win the European Cup in 79 he went on <laughs> he went on virtually uh, I think he no I think he went on on every away leg uh, Clough phoned him up and said your tickets are East Midlands Airport this is the time of the flight make sure you get make sure you get there in a typical Cloughy way it wasn't it wasn't an offer it was a command <laughs> but uh, as what was one of his great friends he was more than happy to go along and it wasn't the first time that, that uh, Stoke went into Europe. They went further, actually, than Europe. They went to America as Cleveland Stokers, didn't they, back in 1967? Yes, and that's where the term the working man's ballet came mm. in, because he, he, Tony Warrington was a kind of evangelist. He wanted to... Uh, he knew that... Americans weren't that much into soccer, and what at the time called it soccer. It wasn't, it wasn't an Americanism as a term. And, and so he wrote a little pamphlet for them, and he thought the best way of describing it to, to the Americans was to describe it in the way of, of, of the... Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewellery, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Bali was something to behold. It was something beautiful. It's a sport he loved, it's a beautiful game. And that's where he, he coined the term the working man's ballet. He put it in, the, in his manifesto for this uh, rather unusual tour of uh, America involving other English clubs. Uh, Stoke became the Cleveland Stokers. 
uh, as you mentioned, I think there were Scottish clubs there too, and it was it was a seven week tour that were out there for the whole. It was hardly a conventional uh, close season uh, series of friendlies. It was uh, quite a long time they spent all out there, all, all in the, with the aim of trying to promote to promote to promote football in uh, the United States, uh, and was maybe in the, the forerunner to the NASL. Um, but it was of limited success. But even so, uh, this, the term uh, a working man's ballet uh, stuck. You're absolutely right. It was the precursor to the uh, NASL. It was the uh, the American Soccer League, and they they didn't pretty much they didn't have teams, so they invited Wolves, for instance, were uh, Los Angeles Wolves, uh, Washington Whips were Aberdeen. <laughs> You've mentioned Stoke City. There was a number of British teams that went on went there and played under American state names in the Eastern and the Western. And then they played the final and Washington Whips uh, played in the final against uh, Los Angeles Wolves, which to this day they still talk about. It was 6-5 after overtime. But uh, back to Stoke City, back to England. And Waddington was really producing a team that was capable of of winning honours. In fact, they hadn't won any honours until 1972. They won the uh, the League Cup by beating Allens at Chelsea. Yeah, so I think that's still that's well, it's still the only major honour Stoke have ever won and of course it cemented not just Tony Warrington's place in history but that entire team the entire squad uh, and it was a great moment for the Potteries in particular I remember it well being out in the streets with the, the open top bus coming everybody even those not interested in football not interested in sport but they were proud of their area as is the case today and it it was a marvellous thing for everybody within the Potteries, not just in the Potteries, in Stoke-on-Trent and Newcastle-under-Lyme, but throughout the Staffordshire Moorlands, throughout the whole district in yeah. North Staffordshire. Everybody in their hundreds of thousands lined the streets. It brought everybody t- together in an area where the pottery industry was still going reasonably strongly, but it was at a time when it was on the cusp of what we saw in the 80s and de- of decline, and and what the Stokes League Cup campaign, not just winning the final, which was the, the pinnacle, obviously, but the entire campaign it it brought the people of the city and the area to, together. It was it was sport was very much part of the culture of the area, and it was just a marvelous celebration. And I think for that, let alone just going to Wembley and lifting the, the trophy in pure sporting terms, it went beyond that. It was it, it was a massive, massive moment culturally for the Potteries and for Staffordshire in general. But it didn't just leave it there, did he, Tony? He kicked it on another level. Stoke City got to two FA Cup semi-finals in the early 70s. Sadly, they played Arsenal in both of them. They were in the UEFA Cup twice, as we've, we've alluded to. But they finished fifth twice, back-to-back. He was not far away from, I would suggest, a European Cup challenge. What Cloughy done with Nottingham Forest... Tony Waddington was on the cusp of that at Stoke City. He just needed one or two other players. And I think Stoke City could have won the league and could have gone on and played in the European Cup. Yes, I think the, the key season was 74-75. Yeah. Uh, they, Alan Hudson had signed the season before, 73-74. He came in uh, January of that year, played one of the other games of his life against Liverpool and was singled out by uh, Shankly after the game. Uh, and I think, you, I don't like to mention Arsenal too much, but in, in 72, there was a huge disappointment after they lost the uh, replay yeah. at Goodison Park, uh, quite a controversial match. And all the players... Banks included. Sadly, later that year, Warrington lost uh, Gordon Banks and, and had to replace him. I, do, I don't think he had to replace him, but that's another issue because yeah. he had a, a perfectly decent backup in John Farmer. But that 74-75 season, there were two or three problems for him. 
the first was limited a limited a small squad and injuries they kept coming up i think there were two three four broken legs terry conroy was out early on for most of the early part of the season and so they he was he was he was running out of resources. He did, he had quite uh, scant resources, and you 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 rely on your luck in any sport. Yes. And certainly for Warrington and Stoke City, their luck di- did run out. The other point, which is maybe harsh, you mentioned uh, Shilton. Quite rightly, Shilton was the goalkeeper who came uh, as a, I think I'm not sure if it's a world record, but certainly a British record for a goalkeeper at the time. And he came in November and most people were quite excited. The players themselves, most of them, and they're not shy of uh, telling anybody this, including Alan. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I think Danny Smith mentioned the same, uh, mentioned the same. And well, actually we needed a striker. We needed a, a, a centre forward. That's what we needed to, to work with, John Ritchie, who was coming to the end of his career, uh, to work with Jeff Hurst again, who who'd, who'd, who'd had signed in '72. Uh, Gordon Banks, obviously, been quite key to getting his England uh, mate uh, to play for Stoke, and but they wanted a young striker. Didn't get that striker. Instead, being true to form, what it went for a great goalkeeper. It can't be said that Peter Shilton didn't have the best of days at Stoke City. He lost his England place to Ray Clements. He didn't get it back until he ended up at Forest yeah. four or five years later. And so everybody bemoans their luck. It's what, hap- it's what happened. It's very frustrating for those of us who saw his team play some wonderful football, the best football I've ever seen from a Stoke uh, team even since. I mean, I, the Premier League Stoke team after the Pulist days, and even sometimes during the Pulist era, Stoke played some decent stuff. It was a little frustrating to, for the reputation they got just for being a, a, a bunch of croggers. They weren't under Pulis. And the, and the Stoke alone, I think, under Hughes at times, it was pretty to watch, but uh, there was always a fragility there that there never was with the uh, team that Warrington had, which wasn't about mid-table mediocrity or just trying to save off relegation. It was a team with a genuine chance of fighting for the title. If Hudson would have come earlier in the season, probably would have won the title. Had you not have had the broken legs at the end of the next season, you probably would have won the title. And that's what I say, Stoke City were just so close to winning that title. He didn't get a centre-forward, but that wasn't because Tony Waddington didn't try. Peter Osgood was joining Alan Hudson, that's fact. Sadly, Oz talked to Laurie and decided to uh, go and play for Southampton, but Osgood had given his word that he he was going to join Alan, and um, Tony waited up all night for the phone call, but it never arrived, sadly. Well, I remember being in the Butler Street stand and he was in that stand for some reason opposite the uh, director's box, the stand opposite there. And of course, all the Stoke fans were badgering him, why are you coming to the club? But then I remember one, one old boy turning around in quite a wily character said, he's not coming here, you know, I can tell. <laughs> it was just, it, there was, somebody had an inkling that uh, Osgood might have had a, a better financial off, offer up his sleeve. I know uh, Alan Hudson was very annoyed about it because he thought he'd persuaded his friend to come along to Stoke. And as you say, I think if uh, Osgood was there, he, he for that 74-75 season, he'd have made a big difference. Yeah, the season before and that season. And I think that yeah. he, he could have been the player that, that took you over the line. And Waddington knew that, but sadly, it didn't happen. What did happen, though, you played in the Anglo-Italian a couple of years uh, prior to that um, and had an audience with the Pope, didn't he, Waddo and Albert? Yeah. Yes, he did. I think that was at Albert Henschel's instigation rather yeah. than uh, uh, Tony, <laughs> Tony Waddington's. And it was... It, it, it was actually quite an odd, odd beating, but it was marred because they, they played Roma in this competition. And, of course, there was a lot of, as, it, as, is, as is the case with uh, Italian football, there was a lot of trouble with uh, 
a capital P, let's say. It's yeah. not just a question of the politics of the football club. It's the politics of the city of Rome and the, the politics of the country. And there was a riot during the uh, the match and Stoke were, went off the field with tear gas in their eyes. And uh, the Pope uh, Paul VI, who was at the time, uh, as on seeing this, actually invited the football club the next day to uh, the Vatican for a meeting and a chat, which must have come as a big shock. It was never planned, but it, it went ahead. And it was the only lesson is that for the Pope was that he, de- as much as he deplored football hooliganism, which was a growing problem, not just in Italy, but obviously uh, here in England at the time as well. They also, in certain seasons, played iconic games during that period that Alan Hudson had joined Stoke City. And a a Stoke fan actually says to Woody, they didn't buy Alan Hudson, they bought a young George Easton. And Woody said, you know, you're absolutely right. And that's what Waddo done. He bought players that he knew could do the job for him in in certain positions. And and Woody says to me that, that Tony never, ever told him how to play football. He never gave him any advice. I think the only thing he said is, Alan, you're doing everything right, but just in the wrong order. And (laughs) Tony always just let Alan play. He said, I bought Alan Hudson because I know what he can do and I'm not telling him to do anything. And I think most of the other players uh, thought that. One or two had reservations. They felt that what it was not the most tactically astute of managers, but they didn't really bother them mind that to be honest with you yeah. because they just thought well he's told Dennis Smith look you can't play football well he can play football but uh, <laughs> he was a great footballer as a defender but the first thing you do is in trouble alright fine boot it long or boot it out but make sure you give the ball to your midfielder yeah. Alan Hudson preferably and that's and, and that's what they you know that uh, and that's what they did it was simple football allow the players to play, allow them to express themselves in the football pitch. And, and if they did that properly, that that would uh, enthuse the fans. They'd get behind them. If they're playing nice, attractive football, if they were comfortable within themselves as, as players, as athletes, that was, that, was, that was fine. And also, it made it more likely they'd win than lose. And two of those iconic games... Um... 47 years ago today, the 23rd of February, when Leeds United arrived at uh, the Victoria Ground, 29-game unbeaten run, 2-0 up, and uh, Stoke City had other other ideas on their mind as to what the outcome of that game was going to be. It's still uh, a legendary game that's talked about even by... Uh, Stoke fans who were born 20, 30 years after it was played. Yeah, it, it, it was, uh, it, it was extraordinary because there was a lot of te- attention before it. Uh, Leeds were going for a record set by Burnley, I think, sometime in yes. the 1920s. It was, yeah. And they, they, they would either equal or beat the record. Beat it on 30, beat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and obviously, Stoke were determined to stop them. Unfortunately, they were 2-0 down after, uh, what was it, uh, 20, half an hour, 25 minutes? 20-odd minutes, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was quite controversial as well. There was uh, Bremner apparently took a dive for a free kick and all sorts of shenanigans were going on, as you can imagine, with the Leeds team of the day and the Stoke team that uh, didn't suffer fools gladly either. So it was quite a feisty affair. It was a very quickly taken free kick by Bremner as well. And that, that was, That's right. That was what wound the players up, didn't he? He shouldn't have took the free kick. He did. He took a quick one. They scored and they were really on the front foot. But, but then Stoke grew into the game and really got the game by the, by the scruff of the neck. And uh, in fact, at half-time, Uddy turned, turned to, uh, to Josh uh, John Mahoney and says, "Look, we've got to pick up. You've got to pick up uh, Bremner. I'll have Giles." Well, that's, yes, <laughs> uh, I, th- I think Mahoney came on as a sub that day. Actually, I think because that's that's the he made a change, and 
And Stoke really second half were all over them. And from a corner, there were three corners from Jimmy Robertson. They were uh, on about the 70th minute, three in a row. And the third one, uh, John John Ritchie uh, headed it, flicked it on, and Dennis Smith uh, piled through and uh, stuck it in the back of the net. Leeds did come close to try and uh, equalise, but uh, it just wasn't to be their day. It was Stoke were by far the better side, and the following season, history is mentioned with Cluffy repeating itself. In fact, even more so with Stoke uh, thrashing in the three 0 But it, it it was also that season it was, it, the seventy three. Uh, 74 season, Stoke announced themselves as a decent league team. They, they were already a decent cup team. And this... Know, were, but this, the, the country realised they were serious about um, maybe beating the top clubs on a regular basis rather than just a one-off. Oh, absolutely. In the season after they did beat uh, clubs on a regular basis, the top clubs. In fact, uh, Easter Monday, when they beat Liverpool 2-0, again, another game that Tony Waddington watered the pitch so Alan Hudson could play. Uh, Stoke went top, didn't they, briefly? They did. They'd been uh, top once or twice before that. They were bobbing along in the top four, occasionally at the top, occasionally slipping. Just before that, that was Easter Monday, that game. Yeah. I was at the game and uh, they they were in London uh, before that. And it wouldn't happen now, but they back to back days. There was the days of the old Good Friday game at yeah. 11 o'clock and Stoke played West Ham. I really should have beaten them. Uh, Terry Conroy scored a couple. It was two all. I know that Terry was very frustrated that he wasn't uh, on the winning side. Next day, it was Arsenal away, one all. Again, Stoke frustrated. Now, you'd think, looking, you'd think, well, they'd be happy with that. They weren't. And they, they were, they had slipped a couple of weeks earlier. They'd lost to Ipswich, who were one of the other title challengers at home. And so they needed to make up ground. And there was, Arsenal were a poor team at the time. To be fair, they they were struggling in the league, and so they did expect to win, and they unfortunately they didn't. But this game against Liverpool, when they played them off the park or the mud heap, it was more, more than a park as it was. It, it Alan Hudson had had, had an, an absolutely brilliant game. Conroy, he was quite fresh, having come back from injury, was inspired. The rest of them were inspired. It it was an occasion in front of forty odd thousand fans. And uh, Liverpool had no answer uh, for them. But unfortunately, the season from that point onwards did peter out. And uh, again, they went to Sheffield United. uh, The club must have a a curse on Stoke. And uh, they lost there and that was it. Effectively, the season was over. It wasn't the last uh, uh, game of the season. But it was the one that Stoke knew after that. Mathematically, they couldn't win the title. I think the curse that day was Tony Curry. It quite possibly was. <laughs> I think it was a 2-0 defeat, but uh, yes. But you, yeah, also, yeah. you also had a curse in the uh, January, the following season, 1976-77, uh, when the uh, Butler Street stand blew down in heavy winds and unbelievably uninsured, and Jimmy Allen and Pedge had to be sold. That broke Tony's heart, didn't it? Yes, it did. I mean, nobody really at the time realised just what the collapse of the roof of the Butler Street stand would lead to, obviously, on its own. Mm. It seemed horrendous, uh, and every every fan thought that at the time they'd petered out in the league season, but still had a, a good, strong chance in the FA Cup. And, and they were due to play, it was the day they were due to play Spurs in a replay, which they eventually won. So um, then they played Man City, ended up playing Sunderland again, knocked out by Sunderland, who Stoke were a much better side than, but it wasn't to be. And later that year, the full extent of the financial horror uh, emerged. Uh, one or two players, Daddy Smith in particular, got wind that things weren't all well with with, with the funding at, at Stoke City. Nobody realised the stand hadn't been insured, and the only thing to do was to. Uh, as far, as far as the board was concerned, was for a fire sale. They got rid of two young players at first, Ian Moores and Sean Hazelgrave, but then the big blow came when the captain was to be sold, Jimmy Greenoff, and Greenoff came back 
in tears to his teammates to say, look, I'm on my way. They've, an offer's come from Manchester United and uh, I'm going because <coughs> Warrington put an arm around him and said, took him out, out onto the pitch and said, look, I'm going to have to sell some players because of the uh, financial situation. Uh, and Greenoff turned around and said, oh dear, that's bad. Who's, who's going? And he says, you. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, and, 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 and it, as, as you mentioned, Waddle was heartbroken to let Jimmy go. He actually intervened to stop him going to Everton. He, he picked up the phone again to Busby, even though Busby wasn't uh, <laughs> the manager at Manchester United, but as we all know, had still had a strong influence there. Tommy Doherty was there at the time, and Waddle did get on with uh, Tommy Dock as well. So I persuaded them, look, I've got, to, I've got to sell this player. Do you want him? And the answer was yes. Brian Greenoff, Jimmy's brother, of course, was at Man United at the time. And, and then eventually, well, Alan Hudson went as well, and, and so that was that was it. And Mike Pedgick went to Everton, and the heart was ripped out of the team, and they struggled, and eventually went down. It, it was it was heartbreaking for Water. He could have stayed on. He he resigned, although most players reckon he was sacked to a, in, in March of '77. But uh, it was a really sad way. It's really to end uh, Tony Wanchin's managerial career at Stoke, and it wasn't down to him. It was down to his, to the board. He had a great relationship, as we mentioned before, with Albert Henschel, the, the, the chairman, who had stepped down from the chairmanship at the time. But not maybe so with the the other directors, who made an actually, frankly, quite a pig's ear running the football club at the time. But little did, we didn't know that, and. Fans as as Stoke went slid down the table were actually calling for Warrington's head, and it was just ridiculous. Two years after they nearly won the title, Johnny yeah. Warrington was hearing the chance of Warrington out, and then he was gone. The last game was against Leicester City. It was uh, quite uh, a sad moment for the football club, but for but, but for, and for the players obviously, and for the fans, but for Tony Warrington in particular. And a, and a, arguably the greatest manager that Stoke City have ever had and are ever going to have. Their man and boy, 17 years, the success that he brought to Stoke City within a cat's whisker of really pulling off the unthinkable. And not just we want it, he built three teams, didn't he, Tony? And, and done it in such a way that lots of managers from the past, we look back, fondly and, and remember for their achievements, whether it be Bill Nicholson, whether it be Joe Mercer, whether it be Malcolm Allison, whether it be Brian Clough, whether it be whoever. Tony's almost the forgotten man, isn't he? And, and Tony Waddington needs to be put up in the same or on the same plinth as, as, as those guys for what he achieved at Stoke City. Well, I think so. I think he's one of the most underrated managers yeah. of that era, without doubt. Although his, his contemporaries all rated him very highly, and it was a mystery to them that he actually stayed at Stoke. Now he had a viable project going, but even in the late sixties, people thought that he might move to another club. He didn't, and he, he stuck loyally with with, with uh, Stoke City. He had a great affinity, not just with the football club, but with the area, the fans, the people. And so he stayed, and he stayed in an era when there was a lot more loyalty from clubs towards managers. All those managers you mentioned did uh, have quite uh, long-term careers with their yeah. football clubs. Yes, one or two moved about, not least Cluffy in the in the 70s, but it, there, there was a, a stronger association with their with their football clubs and with with their fan base. Warrington never lost that at Stoke City. It can be argued, of course, he lost the fans at the end, but fans looking back, and I was one of that era, regret uh, the old Warrington out chance because I don't think anybody appreciated just what a mess financially the football club was in at the time and just how the directors had run the, the club poorly. And it precipitated, I think, a long-term decline in Stoke City Football Club. Yes, they did get back into the first division and played there in the early 80s, but then went down 
with what's still the record relegation tally for a, a top-flight club, I think Derby County just about beat it when they went down uh, a few years ago, 10, 10, 12 years ago. And it was a, it was a long time. It was nearly a quarter of a century before they were back in the top flight again under Tony Pulis with Peter Coates as the uh, manager, the chairman rather. But again, as as bad as it was then when they went down with record points, although Tony wasn't the manager, it, it was Tony that that instigated the move to bring Alan Hudson back in. And that 83-84 season was another fantastic... It was the great escape of Stoke. So even when Tony wasn't the manager, he still cared enough to be part of it. And, and he was still connected with the club going forward, wasn't he? Yes, it was great. He was invited back. Uh, Peter Coates was part of that and... Uh... I think the board realised their mistake. He actually had a brief period managing at uh, Crew Alexandra, and he tried to get uh, Alan to play for Crew. Uh, he when he was uh, Alan was at, at, at Seattle, but uh, unfortunately nothing came of it. Mainly, uh, Warrington argues because of the FA arguing over work permits yeah. and his American permits and all the rest of it. And he just thought, well, this is ridiculous. The player wants to come over and play for me. Uh, in, in in the fourth division, Alan was prepared to do that. Fortunately, he waited and he was able to play first division football again with Stoke uh, a year a year or two later. With as you say, uh, Warrington allowed back into the football club that he loved, and he was in in the behind the scenes. He was helping out. I think it was Bill Asprey was the Stoke manager at he the was. time. Yeah, and so an ex player of uh, under Warrington in the yeah. in the sixties. Mm-hmm. So yeah. He, he, he maintained that love for the, uh, for the football club and everyone at the football club now and uh, the fans now. It, it, it's it's mutual and uh, he is an absolute legend of the football club. He always will be. He is, as things stand, easily uh, the best manager the football club has ever had. The only others that will come close is, is Pulis, as I mentioned, Tony Pulis, and, to be fair, Bob McGrory. Yeah. All of that and more is in this wonderful book, just over 250 pages. The uh, The cover is a wonderful uh, front cover with uh, Peter Dobian and Wad the God, Banksy and Dennis Smith and... Peter Osgood even in the, uh, the background there and a policeman with his... Bobby Atton and, and the crowd yeah. there at Wembley. Banksy don't look too pleased, to be quite truthful. And on the back of it is Chopper Harrison, Dave Sexton, director of the Working Man's bi- uh, Ballet's biography of former Stoke City manager Tony Waddington, one of the most underrated figures in the 1960s and 70s. I think you're absolutely right, John. It's a fantastic read. It is still out there, guys, so go on to Amazon or any um, mode of purchase that you can find. Order the book, buy the book, read the book, and um, let's just reminisce about one of the game's great managers. What the God, um, a person fondly remembered and never shall be forgotten, sir. I'm uh, really, I'm really grateful, Gabby. That's uh, very kind of you, and uh, thanks for chatting. I've enjoyed it. I absolutely love it. I, I am a Birmingham City supporter, regardless of what anybody says or thinks. But I am a lover of football, and I was there that day as a nine-year-old kid when Alan Hudson and the rest of the Stoke City team demolished my team 3-0. My dad always took me down, and like Alan's dad, he took him down to watch inside forwards and and wingers, and my dad identified Hudson that day, and uh, since then we've become uh, best of pals, and it's an absolute joy talking to you, to Alan, and, and through that, uh, I've, you know, you develop a, a fondness of Stoke City and, and certainly that team and, and, and Tony Waddington because Alan absolutely loves the man. And in Alan's words, it was a match made in heaven when Alan joined Tony at Stoke. Well, it's quite a story and uh, I hope uh, other football fans do enjoy it. It is for other sports fans. It, it, it It's a tale of... Uh, you know, what might have been, but actually not quite because they did lift the league club cup. It, it, they did 
win silverware. It's just that they all hope to win more and looks like winning more. Sadly, it wasn't to be. Sadly. Till next time, thank you so much, John. How's the latest project panning out at the moment as we speak? I'm uh, still uh, uh, beavering away. I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I mean, I'm, uh, it's, it's quite difficult now in the COVID era because yeah. I wanted to do a project where I can get out and about looking at Gaelic games and going out and talking to people and I'm having to rethink that. Doing a lot of the research into it, into the early history of Gaelic games in Britain, that's been reasonably fine. But even then, with uh, libraries closed, archives closed, it's difficult. But uh, I will persevere. That's the that's the way to do it. And I enjoy writing and enjoy doing the research. So we'll carry on with that. And hopefully when uh, everything gets lifted later in the year, we can go back to playing sport, watching sport. And uh, for journalists like myself, <laughs> bury ourselves away with the, the cuttings and the archive and all the rest of it to look at the history and maybe chatting to uh, uh, others about sport is what I love to do. And, you know, love to get people's views uh, on their sporting disciplines, regardless of what it is, not just football, not just rugby or athletics, which is, as I say, is my sport, but anything. And that's why uh, I've indulged in this rather unusual project on looking at Gaelic games. But we'll see how it goes. Absolutely. Here, here. Till next time. Thank you, John. Thanks, Gabby. Thank you. Cheers, pal. And Cheers. thanks for listening, so- guys. And I'm sorry about the cough. <laughs> I put the heater on about six o'clock, which is a mistake to do. <laughs> but anyway. Never a good idea when you got a tickle, put the heater on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry about that. Cheers, yeah, pal. Okay, cheers. Thank Lovely. you. Lovely. Thanks, John. Thanks, bye bye now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.